now? Are we ready to rock? Yeah. Good morning. 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 Oh, come on. Half of you said that. Good morning. <laughs> it's great to see you guys again. Me too. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are delighted to be in your presence today. We uh, thank you for preserving us uh, against uh, any illness that might befall us. Hey, welcome. How are you doing? Good to see you, Rick, Terry. Um, we uh, just are delighted to be in your presence. We ask that you would bless this service to your holy, precious name. Amen. Uh, anybody discover something new in this la since last we met together? I discovered that I have three favorite things. I love eating out in restaurants, patronizing non-essential businesses, and touching my face. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's better. We're working on, some, on stuff that's new, so we actually have music. Words are up on the screen. Please enjoy. It's a time to worship. Come, come. Now is the time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Just as you are before your God. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Is the time to worship. Come. Now is the time to give your heart. Come. Just as you are to worship. Come. Just as you tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. 
my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be
desire and I long to worship Thee. Now we'll kick over to a hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And you can find that on page 60 if you prefer to read it out of the book instead of seeing it on the screen. <clears throat>
the weeks that we do are just a little on the bizarre side because we work a little bit at the school every day and then we come here. And it's all good. Better kick this on. Not stand too close. I don't want to blow people's ears off. But it's always a, it's been very enjoyable because I get to work with a lot of the, the cooks. I get to watch a lot of the kids when we, they pass out the lunches at the middle school. It's been very peaceful. A little on the boring side, but very peaceful. As you know, we've been said before, we're doing these podcasts and still quite a learning curve to get them down. I just figured out this last Friday that how to pause it to be able to start it back up again for a continuation. So that was a good deal. If you haven't been listening to the podcast, as soon as uh, you get the address for them, which is real easy, you can pull them up on your phones, on the computer, tablets, what have you, and you can listen to anything that we've already put up on the, on the net for all to hear. Please share it with anybody you know. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day to be able to come back together as a congregation, to worship and praise you, to be one with you. It's nice to see faces in the congregation. And it's fun to have the get-together, to catch up just a little bit. Lord, I ask that you just be with us and keep us safe. Let us enjoy the days that we have, praising and worshiping you on this, especially this particular day. Be with those that are ill. Be with those who have lost loved ones. Give them the comfort that they need. Father, I ask that you just let us enjoy every blessing that you give us. Thank you, Father, for all these things. All this we ask in your name. Amen. Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. Now, last week, we saw that the Israelites initially fought and lost 4,000 men. They were concerned about this. And when they got back to the camp, the leader said, Oh, why has the Lord allowed us to be defeated? Now, normally in these circumstances, when they have lost a battle, they would go to God and ask God himself. But they didn't. They kept on talking to themselves. And when they went to the Lord in the past, God would normally show them or tell them what it was that they did wrong. They would repent, make sacrifices, and then God would be there fighting right alongside with them, if not and or for them. But that's not what they did this time. They came up with their own battle plan. I know. Let's go back and get the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and bring it to the battlefield. And that's what they did. They didn't go to God. They made up their own human plan. Now, the Philistines, when that ark arrived, they heard the great shout of the people. And it took them just a few seconds to realize that God was in their camp. And they were afraid and they were concerned because they knew exactly what their God had done to the powerful kingdom of Egypt. Destroyed them, put all kinds of plagues on them destroyed their gods. Well, the next day they went to battle. Israel was routed. They lost 30,000 men that day. But worse, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. 
The Philistines just knew, well, that just goes to prove our God is more powerful than theirs. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple in their main city. And things after that did not go well at all. They ended up be receiving some of the plagues that the Egyptians did. Only a little bit worse, if you ask me. They had ended up with a plague of tumors, and we found out that, well, they were cursed with hemorrhoids or piles. Along with that, they were hit with mice infested on their fields, and they were put into great confusion, which led to them being a little bit more, more combative with themselves, possibly killing themselves, or even going a little bit off their, their mind. They endured this for seven months, passing this ark from city to city. They said, this is enough. We finally had enough. We need to get this thing sent back. So they got their priests together and said, what do we do? And the priest told them, well, send the ark back to the Israelites, but don't send it empty-handed. Put a guilt offering in it. And they made golden mice and images of the golden tumors and put them in a box and put them next to the ark of the covenant, sent it on its way. The Israelites were ecstatic. There's the ark of the covenant. And they put it down and they chopped up the cart, they burnt, used it for a fire, sacrificed the two oxen that were pulling it, and they were happy as can be. But they made a mistake and they looked inside the ark. And it cost them dearly. They ended up sinning. So they sent to the sit, uh, messengers to uh, Kirith Jerium and said, come get this thing. They didn't call for Shiloh to come get it. They called for another city. When we ended up uh, when we ended with looking at how these three chapters were applicable in today's times, I asked several questions, which I hope that anybody had heard the podcast had listened to and thought about and dwelled about for the week. And those questions were, do we as Christians know who God is, who know who God is, who have given our lives over to Christ, really trust and obey as we should? Are we making a joyful noise praising and honoring him, or are we just making noise so others will think that he's here in our lives? How often do we try and manipulate God, promising to do this or that if he would just do this one thing? How many times do we take something and trust in it instead of him? How many times do we take and make plans or try to solve things on our own instead of bringing the problems to God? having the patience to rely on and trust him to provide the guidance. How many times in our lives are things more important than him? When we are in the wrong and are punished, do we just grouse and complain that it just isn't fair? Or do we look at it in the manner which it is intended to turn us back to him, to give him the glory and honor that he truly deserves? Those are the questions that every Christian really needs to ask themselves on a daily basis. Is God first in our lives? Well, that's where we left off. This week, let's pick up with 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8. 1 Samuel 7, verse 1 and 2. And the men of kirith Jerim came and took the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And consecrate Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From that day, that ark remained at Kirith Jerem, and the time was long, for it was 20 years 
And all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The people of Kiriath-Jerim came and collected the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to their city as requested. Like I said, they didn't take it back to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. They took it to this city. Why? I don't have that answer. The town that it was taken to was not one of the Levite towns. So they didn't even have come and collect the ark and take it to the Levite towns that were authorized in the land. The townspeople consecrated Eleazar to take care of the ark. Now, this is not Eleazar the priest. This is just some regular guy, just like me and you. And they consecrated him to take care of it. His job was not to make sacrifices to it. His job was not to minister to the Lord before it or to be a go-between for the people. He was not a priest. His main function in life was to guard it, to keep people from doing stupid things like, let's see what's in it. He did this for 20 years. During this time, things were not all that great in their lives. They were still, their cities were in ruins and they were being ruled over by the Philistines and they have not really been following God the way they should have been. They were still feeling the crunch and bite of misery. And all from the simple time that they tried to manipulate God by taking the ark out of the Holy of Holies and bringing it to a battlefield. They could have made an excuse and blamed every woe on something else because of this, but in all reality, their hearts were not in the right place. They were not right with God. They were so far off the beaten path, they were lost. 20 years later, 20 years they began to lament for God. They realized their lives were not great. What's missing? God was missing. They had forgotten what they were commanded to do and teach their children. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They had forgotten this. Samuel was absent now. Think about this. From the time Samuel was spoken to by God, Till this point in time, 20 years later, you hear nothing from Samuel. He's absent from the picture. He's a prophet. He's supposed to be speaking the word of God. Why wasn't he? Well, Deuteronomy 18, verses 16 through 18. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among the countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. Obviously, the prophet of God, Samuel, was not given any word from God. He has nothing to say. Even if he had something to say on his own, would it have come true if it was not from God? No. He has to wait for God to speak to the people. God needs to wait till the people are longing for him. 
Remember, if you search for God with all your heart, you're going to find him. The people were now ready for that time to hear God again. 1 Samuel 7, uh, verses 3 and 4. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Samuel did not come back in the picture when the Ark of the Covenant was returned saying, oh, now we can be right with God again because we have the Ark back again. Or we have to defeat the Philistines before God can speak. No, none of that. Samuel did not return until the hearts were yearning for God. When he does return... Samuel calls him to repentance. Now think about it. Repentance has both an inward and an outward aspect to it, which are mentioned in verse 3. The inward aspect here was the return to the Lord with all your hearts. A person has to return to God in their hearts. Nobody can see it. Nobody can actually witness what goes on in your heart. It is between you and God. I cannot say that my children have repentance for anything. I can't see it. I can only see the actions and the reactions. A person has to return to God in their hearts. The outward part was remove the foreign guards and, uh, gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. This is the aspect that people can see. If I do something, you can see it. Do you know if it was heartfelt? Maybe, maybe not. If a person has repented in their hearts, it will show in their actions. You can't really have one without the other because you can only fake it for so long. Your actions, if your heart hasn't changed, eventually the truth will come out. Were you really sorry for what you did? If, there, if their actions are really there and have the right motivation, it will happen in their heart. And I have to really believe that the inward part takes place first. It's really hard when you're not right with God to have things happen great. Inward repentance is a secret thing. Like I said, nobody can see it. It is hidden. Yet the inward is proven by the outward. And Israel did that. They took and went back to God in their hearts and they put the foreign gods away from them. They lived it. They were doing it. When, you, when we look at Baal and uh, that, what was he? He was the weather god. He was the god of, of, if you needed good crops, you prayed to him because it sent rain, which made you wealthy because your crops would grow. You were able to go out and have success. This is what they prayed for. Wealth, success. That's why they went away and worshipped him. What about Ashtaroth? She was the goddess of sexual immorality and pleasure. Well, you got to sacrifice to her because she's the one that keeps Baal happy. 
So that's what they did. They worshipped the things to have wealth, success, and sex. Are the ancient Israelites the only ones that ever did this? Are they the only ones that ever chased after these things? Well, I would beg to differ because last time I checked, we have people still in today's times that worship money, success, and sex. We are no different in our world today than they were then. Some people chase things other than God. 1 Samuel 7, verses 5 and 6. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel called them all together at Mizpah for a revival. They've already come to repentance. Now it's time to have a revival. If you ask me, he was basically the Billy Graham of his day. Now, I've always said that I appreciated Billy's ministry and that, but I thought that he left off something very important. He could get you to come to the Lord, but he didn't tell you how to continue it. That's where Franklin came in, I think. Now, Franklin's got this beautiful round ministry. He not only brings you to God, but he finishes it. He shows you how to continue searching for God, where to go to get help. He's a promoter of it. Israel just didn't need to put away the idols and put away the bad things that they were doing. They needed to have a revival, to come to God, to continue learning more about God, to search for Him more, to get more and more involved with Him. They had to pursue the good. The people demonstrated a physical example of what they were feeling when they drew the water and poured it out. Lord, we are like these empty vessels pouring out anything that was good. We are empty. We are ready to be filled again with your goodness. Teach us, God. Show us, God. Bless us. Nothing was more important to them than God. They fasted. They prayed. They worshiped. They didn't care about money. They didn't care about the food or drink. God was most important in their declaration of, we have sinned against the Lord. No excuses were made. No ifs, ands, or buts. We did this, and whatever you do to us, we deserve. They own their plight. 1 Samuel 7, verse 7 and 8. Now, when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The people were right with God at this point in time, at this very moment. What happens when we're right with God? When we have done things that we know were wrong and we came back to him, what's the first thing that happens? Do every, does everything go hunky-dory and smooth? Or does everything that you're doing feel like you're being attacked? After all, you're in a spiritual warfare. You can't be right with God without something attacking you. 
When you're right with God, you put that big bullseye on your chest. Everything comes to get you. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. When this happens, it's time and when our confidence begins to uh, give a little bit. Gosh, God, I just came back to you. Are you abandoning me already? They were right with God. And a spy went out and said, hey, all of Israel is over here at Mizpah. They're worshiping and praising God. They're back one with God. Philistines can't allow this. If God's in their lives, we're going to be in trouble. When the army gathered to face them, they cried out to Samuel. Please continue praying for us to God to save us. This is a whole different ballgame from the last time they met 20 years earlier when they said, man, what are we going to do? Let's go get the ark. Let's rely on an idol that we've turned into an idol. Let's rely on the ark instead of God. But here they didn't say, oh, quick, go get the ark. No, cry to God for us. Have God save us. A little bit of faith in God is much stronger than a lot of faith in a lie. 1 Samuel 7, verses 9 and 10. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered. And with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The Philistines are literally beginning to attack at this time. And what does Samuel do? Does he say, form up the battle lines. God will be with you. Get ready to retreat and run. No. Samuel says, it's time to sacrifice to God. He takes a young, innocent lamb and sacrificed it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Nothing taking place at this time was more important than sacrificing to God. Nothing was more important than acknowledging God will take care of you. He is more important than anything we can face. Even in today's times, no matter what we're facing, if we go to God, he is more important and more powerful than anything we can face. As the sacrifice was starting, they were telling, this is what we deserve. We are sinners. We have sinned. Anything that you do, we deserve. Thank you, God, for accepting this lamb, this piece of innocence for our sin. Sound familiar? Once again, a foreshadowing of Christ and God's plan. It is interesting what God did when the lamb was sacrificed. He attacked the Philistines, not with the great hailstones like he's done in the past and other people and just killing them outright, but with a loud clap of thunder, which stopped them dead in their tracks, bringing enough fear and panic that they started to run away, making them easy for Israel to defeat. 
Josephus adds that God created an earthquake, which made them a lot, uh, a lot of them fall on the ground. On top of that, he opened up the earth and swallowed up a whole bunch of them. In addition to this, along with the thunder, their faces and hands were burnt with lightning. All of this caused them to turn tail and run. Israel routed them. Was it because of their own power? No. They were right with God, and God was fighting with them again. God was standing by them, taking care of business. As we get ready to move over to chapter 8, it's a transition between the judges and the kings. This is where the judges stop. 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 3. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel was an honest God-fearing man, but he made just one, well, just one minor mistake. He appointed his sons as judges over Israel. Who appoints the judges in those days? Was it man? No. God appointed the judges. It was not his responsibility to do this. Eli knew what his sons were up to and did nothing about it. I am not so sure that Samuel knew what his sons were doing. He may have, and he may have been going after them like Eli should have been with his kids, but I just don't know. When it comes to our children, nothing has really changed over the years, has it? Unless a child is a murderer or something else, uh, worse, does a parent actually see what their kids are, that are, doing, are doing wrong? Or, or do we have kids, oh, this is my innocent baby. They'd never do that. It must be something else. It must be you. This is my child. I know them best. I see it all the time at school. Kids do things wrong. They don't do their homework or something else. And what do they do? The parents don't accept responsibility. They say, well, it must be your fault. You're not very good at what you do. It's hard to hold our own children accountable for their actions. We are willing to bail them out in any situation. Sometimes I think that's harmful. We should allow them face the things that they bring on to themselves. It's the way to grow. It's the way to advance. It's the way to figure out God is where I need to go. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. We need to take the time to let our kids understand. Don't give them their way in everything. Some things it's okay, but not everything. They have to learn. All the elders of Israel, uh, they got together and came to Samuel to address the situation. One could only hope that they did it in love. However, knowing what we know about Israel, they probably did not. They probably went and, and complained to him loudly and would not have been a pleasant conversation. 1 Samuel 8, 5. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways, 
Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They told a harsh truth. It was true that Samuel was old, and nobody likes to hear you're old. Nobody likes to hear you're not good. Nobody likes to hear bad things about their kids. Nobody likes to hear that the actions that you're taking are wrong. Remember, he's old. We know he's old. But every year he still makes a circuit to all the towns doing what he does. He can't be that old. He's a prophet. He's in the service of God. He can't be that old. How many of us consider ourselves so old that we no longer have to do what God needs us to do? We're no longer, it no longer applies. I'm old, I'm tired, I don't have to witness. I'm old, I'm tired, I don't have to do these other things that God needs to have done. Sorry, until you're dead, you're never too old to do what God needs you to do. And it was true. His sons did not walk in his ways, which was probably upsetting to him, but they could not say that he wasn't willing to listen to them. They weren't ready to say, well, your sons are this and you haven't done anything. Like I said, maybe he just didn't know what they were doing. But you see, these two initial complaints were not the heart of the issue. The people can say and make excuses for what they really want. We want a king so that we can be like all other nations around us. This was wrong. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were not supposed to be like the rest of the world. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be that shining light on the hill that people could look at them and see God, the one true God, to witness the blessings that they were given. But here, they are calling for a king so that they could be like everybody else around them. 1 Samuel 8, verse 6 and 7. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is a tough deal. Needless to say, Samuel was not happy. He may have even, uh, even taken this as a personal attack on his character. Think about that. He has been a faithful servant to God, a reliable prophet to God, a reliable judge for God. And now they're saying, oh, that means nothing to us. You're old. You're not good enough anymore. We don't think you can do what God needs you to do. He always did this. He, he did what he always did. He took it to God in prayer. God, can you believe what they're doing? And he receives his answer, most likely while he was still in prayer. 
It is not you, but me they have rejected. The basic same scenario will play out again in the future when Pontius Pilate would address the crowd, John 19, 15. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. He wasn't good enough then. They wanted that earthly thing to be like everybody else. God continued to tell him that from the day that he had delivered them from Egypt to current times, they have always forsaken him. They have always gone and chased other gods. They have never really relied on him wholeheartedly. Tell them what a king will do if you appoint a king that you want. 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 through 18. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself and his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best among the best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Did you take notice of that main theme that runs all throughout there? He will take, 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 and take, and over and over and over again. This is what the king you choose will do to you. He will take your life. It will not be your own. You will be subject to the king that you choose. The people are jumping the gun here. I can only assume that God would have given them an earthly king when the time was right. And that would have been David. But they're impatient. Christ is not a taking king, is he? He's a serving king. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When we accept Christ as king, don't we become part of the royal family? Don't we become in the royal priesthood? That's what it tells us in 1 Peter 2.9. As a royal family member, we need to be a giving royalty and not a taking one. There are two types of people in the world today, and actually throughout eternity. Those are your takers and your givers. 
Look at the takers in today's times. Aren't they always happy? Oh, heck no. Just the opposite because they're always looking for something that makes them happy. What can I take from the world today that makes me happy? This is no way to live. This is a burden. Think about the stuff in today's world. If that person's a taker, they're chasing things. They're chasing other gods. Anything to fill that hole. And they're never going to find it for what they're looking for. People like us that have Christ, how happy are you? We still face things in life, but really, when you think about it, we're really fairly happy. We don't worry about anything. We're not really overly concerned about a whole lot of stuff, which is the way it should be. The people wanted a king for unspiritual reasons, for ungodly reasons. And as it said, it's the king they chose. We don't want God to be our king. We don't want God to fight our battles. We want somebody to do it for us. When Christ is king, when we accept him, we no longer really care about what the world can give us. Earthly goods don't mean nothing. You can't take it with you. That acceptance is freeing. 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 through 22. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated to them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. The people in Israel are stubborn and stubborn rebellion cried out for a king like the nations. We don't need God. We, have, we want this. It was God's plan to give them a king, an earthly king, but one in his timing, one after his own heart. Who would rule under God's authority with God's ruling over the king's heart? We know that the first king that God chose well, was Saul of the tribe of Benjamin and not from the tribe of Judah as it was prophesied by Jacob in Genesis 49. Why? Well, this is, they're jumping the gun. We want a king. Well, I got to give you somebody or she won't shut up. Well, we need to remember what happened in Genesis 38, verse 6 through 30. That is the account of the sin of Judah and his illegitimate child through Tamar, Perez. There was also a twin Zerah, but since Perez was the firstborn and in the family and the seed of the royal line, he's the one that the Messiah is going to come to. But what? remember what it told us in Deuteronomy 23 too? An illegitimate son could not enter the congregation of the Lord until the 10th generation. What does this mean? It means that such a son and none of his descendants until the 10th generation could serve as king or priest. Everybody from Judah forward for 10 generations. Jesse was the ninth generation. David's the 10th. God could not appoint 
his king because it would have broken his word. It would have made him a liar. As a result, God chose Saul until David could come of age. A lot of people think that David wasn't even born at this time. I kind of tend to think that myself. In this day and age, be careful what you ask for. Be careful of what king you choose to follow. Are you going to chase the empty dreams? Or are you going to still stick with God? I myself, I'll stick with God. of sin I did wrong. When Jesus said, I shepherd me, and now I am on my way home. Surely and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for to be able to congregate together, to meet as a body, to worship and praise you, to give you the glory and the honor that's due, to learn and understand your God. There's only one king, and that's your son. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. Amen.